0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas, powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, I'm Phil C, and this is The Breakfast Grill. Probably the trial of the year, perhaps decade, and some would argue the millennium, has been the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, short for SBF. And if you really want to get an excellent context and blow-by-blow account of the twist and turns of this trial, joining me today is Rachel Humphrey, Senior Producer at The Journal Podcast, and Caitlin Ostroff, Reporter at The Wall Street Journal, with their podcast series, The Trial of Crypto's Golden Boy. Caitlin, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. And really, congratulations on pulling off a riveting podcast series here.
1: Thank you for having us in that very kind introduction. Um, Amazing intro. Thank you.
0: Well, let's just start with the title of the series, White. Why is SBF truly the golden boy of crypto?
1: So we called it that after much back and forth and trying to find a proper title for the series because that was the image that Sam Bankman fried presented to the world, um, and particularly U.S. regulators, U.S. customers. And so it was this idea of crypto can be a place where everything is very new. There's not a lot of regulation. It can be very hard to figure out what platforms, what people you can trust. And Sam kind of hit everyone over the head with the message that I am that person. FTX Mm. is the platform that you should trust.
0: The savior.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he was saying that, you know, I'm trying to solve the world's problems. I'm doing it via my crypto company. And I also want crypto to be regulated and have all of these protections. I am essentially like the good person within crypto.
2: And as you say, was was saying he was saving it in the crypto winter, which was confusingly, the summer of of 2022. (laughs) But I think the other reason that we alighted on that title was because we wanted something that also spoke to his age and how he presented himself, which was as someone who was very young Mm. and always came across as like the kind of wonder kid in the room, which I think separated him from others within the crypto world.
0: Yeah, fascinating because you talk about the youth and age and that seemed to play against him right throughout the whole trial. The fact that he was inexperienced, that he was a terrible risk manager and that was the kind of position he played for himself, isn't it? That he actually didn't have ill intent, that he was just incompetent, uh, sloppy and a terrible risk manager.
1: Yeah, I'm so young and therefore you should trust me with your money. And I like have an idea for this industry that like, you know, people who are older than me can't quite comprehend. That all plays well until you're standing in front of a jury going you know, I have children mm-hmm. your age. If they did anything like this, mm-hmm. I would like be furious. <laughs> like I, I think it did backfire in the end.
2: Yeah, the sort of scrappy startup vibe that he wanted and he had, you know, during his tenure as CEO of, of, of FTX and Alameda formerly, you know, in the core, it, it kind of crumbled and it looked it just looked messy. I mean, we sat there and we saw those spreadsheets, Caitlin, with, you know, like they were very basic spreadsheets. I mean, Caitlin, who's someone who knows a lot about like maths and coding and finance, I think everyone had their heads in their hands about the way that they ran that business at times during the trial.
1: Yeah, there was a lot within it where you looked at evidence. It was literally brought up. We were all sitting in the gallery. There was like this big screen projector they would display these spreadsheets and all of this stuff on. And you kind of just sat there and you went, they got billions of dollars, but they had spreadsheets with all these like comments to each other in it. And like literally a random number function in some of their code that just put out numbers at random. Like there were a bunch of different points in there where you went, the youth might have been an asset when they were trying to convince people to sign on to their dream. But it really did turn out to be a liability in the courtroom.
0: And approvals by emoji. Seriously. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Who, I mean, who, who wouldn't approve huge expenses with, like, you know, different Slack reacts? I mean, like, there's <laughs> there's just no other way to do expenses.
0: I, I think this is one of the things that is fascinating. You you sh- We really shed a light in his management style, perhaps, and understand how he really conducted himself. But just give us some context to our listeners, right? Why is this trial perhaps one of the biggest frauds in corporate, corporate history?
2: There's a number of ways to answer that. I mean, first of all, it was just the amount of money that he um was alleged to have taken right that the and I, and I will say that throughout the trial that number fluctuated but initially certainly it was 8 billion dollars that was missing when FTX collapsed that was F, uh, 8 billion of customers and investors money. So there was the size of it, first Mm. of all. But I think also it was like the speed of which all this happened, which is reflective of of crypto, but not of traditional finance. And I think as well, we should say like there's the context of how the authorities here in the US have been slowly and increasingly cracking down on crypto and they were looking to have a, a big case. And this was it. I don't know if you'd add to that. Caitlin?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it It was really just whiplash for a lot of people. As Rachel said, the speed to which this happened, I think kind of elevated the the profile of the case. And then just, I think, you know, the, the level of promises that people had been made, like the repeated message of your money is safe here. We're going to make the world better. We have the good intent. Um, you know, we're giving to charity to like and doing everything by the book. It it took basically the like end all be all of, you know, what is the best person? What is the best company that you can be? And then it all turned out to be completely false. I think there's other companies that have existed where, you know, maybe there was all always some sort of seed of doubt. And yeah. so if such a collapse happened, it wouldn't be as shocking. And I think with this one, it was just that whiplash. And
0: clearly expectation yeah, and clearly expectation was the mother of all disappointment, isn't it? Expectations were sky high with respect to FTX then.
2: Yeah, I was about to say, you know, to have a CEO like Sam Bankman-Fried who did so many interviews, was so present, you know, he was very active in in Congress. He was he was, you know, funding so many politicians in the US. He had so many big backers. He had many, you know, celebrity friends and and supporters, like, I think that was the other thing that set this trial apart. If you look back in history at big fraud trials, like it's not often that you have someone who's so media friendly and has Mm. such a personality and is even to people who don't, Follow crypto is is recognizable. I mean, Caitlin and I had this experience a couple of times outside the courthouse in Manhattan, where there would be you know crowds of reporters outside for different trials, and a member of the public would come up to us and say, "What's going on?" And we'd say, "Oh, it's the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried." And they'd look at us blankly, and then we would show a picture of him to that person with his characteristic big hair and his shorts and t-shirt, and they'd know who he is. You know, he really like nearly achieved this thing of taking crypto mainstream, and I think that was. The the, another big reason that this was such a huge case historically.
0: I have to say, we you know, when I listened to your podcast, there was clearly a very strong effort to try and demonstrate and actually make things a bit as simple as possible, right? And I think what struck me was the testimonial, I think, by, by Professor Eastman. I think you called him the Santa Claus of forensic accounting, correct me am I wrong? That's terrible, to like be Santa honest. Yeah. <laughs> but he was yeah. able to paint a very clear picture about where the money went, right? Through through very simple flowcharts, right? I think that was a credit throughout the whole process that you actually provided a lot of clarity in terms of where the money actually went.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, if if you were the prosecution, your job, while still hard, was at least somewhat more straightforward. You know, their argument from day one was that fraud is fraud. And so it was a matter of, you know, Bankman fried told people their money was going to this one thing. The money didn't go there. And actually, this is where the money went. And so they had flow charts. They had people giving these um, spoken testimonials, which I'm sure we'll get into. And they just had, you know, all of all of this evidence reinforcing that. And if you were the defense, you know, your job was to make it seem like actually it was more complicated than that. And it's not quite as black and white as the government is trying to portray it.
2: I think those flowcharts that the expert witness, Professor Easton, produced, they, to me, felt like a clarifying moment in the trial. I think they Mm -hmm. did for you too, Caitlin. You've been covering this story for so long. And and one of the biggest questions we had... Going into this trial was when did the fraud begin and where was the money coming from and where was it going and the answer at the end of it is we still don't know the answers mm. to that last, last question or really to a great degree the first but the flowcharts helped us to get a sense of what was happening and I thought it was very smart by the prosecution to provide that visual evidence because a lot of what we heard or saw was a lot of flow, was a lot of spreadsheets and messages which became confusing. After a while.
1: Yeah. And those are and those were visual aids that even at the time we kind of sat there and were like, the jury can request these after. Like those are documents that they can ask to see in the deliberation room. And so if all of the testimony and the numbers and the spreadsheets get confusing in their head, they have Australian Father Christmas, as so you put it <laughs> Rachel's um <laughs> flow charts to fall back on.
0: I think for me, you know, when, when you try and paint the whole picture, the atmosphere of the court and the seriousness of Judge Kaplan with these 12 juries, you've got the parents sitting behind. It was very hard to get seats at the court, right, I presume. And you paint a picture of the atmosphere in the court, right? And how did it evolve throughout the whole case?
2: It was, I mean, austere all the way through. You're in this wood-panelled room. Judge Kaplan, who you mentioned um has this reputation here in New York as a, a very tough judge in all senses. And he mm. runs a very strict courtroom. And that was to the point where there was no whispering that happened. You could only drink water. Once you were in the courtroom, you know, you were focused on on the trial and, and, and people respect him. The jury really respected him. His priority often in cases is to think of the jury and their time. And so he hates time wasting in, from anyone in the courtroom. And that would be from the kind of top lawyer to the witnesses. I mean, it would be all of us. And yeah, I, I would say that um, while the courtroom, sort of the the tone was the same, I think throughout, and I think people grew to respect it. You know, a lot of people turning up to this trial were people from the world of crypto. There were a lot of baseball caps being worn initially that would taken off, you know, people began to understand what they needed to do to be in the courtroom.
1: Yeah, I think we kind of threw off um, the the press corps that had assembled for this trial, I think, looked quite different, to Rachel's point, from ones that would cover other trials. And I think some of the court marshals and some of the other courthouse staff were a bit thrown off by, you know, a, a man named Taco. No one knows what his <laughs> actual name is. Um, and other people from, like, the crypto press who showed up to cover this And, you know, we were sat out there some days at, you know, 3.40 a.m. to get a seat in the courtroom. Um, And it was very competitive. Um, And it like it it was honestly a little bit insane. But we all kind of formed this bond, I think, by the end of it. It was a bit like summer camp where you're just surrounded by all of these people day in and day out. And you get to bond really intensely.
0: All right, we're going to continue to have that discussion about the nature of the trial as we take a break and we continue our discussions with Rachel Humphrey and Kaylin Ostra from The Wall Street Journal with their podcast series, The Trial of Crypto's Golden Boy. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. Welcome back. Joining me is Rachel Humphries and Kaelin Ostra from the Wall Street Journal with their podcast series, The Trial of Crypto's Golden Boy, as they unpack the trial of Sam Backman-Fried. Now, you know, Kaylin, Rachel, we just give you just give some context about the nature and structure of the f- trial. Let's just go straight right to the proceedings because um of course the focus really was in terms of I think how the defense and prosecution painted SBF. Could you help us contrast the different narratives that both the defense and prosecution wanted to paint on SBF?
2: I think I mean, so the the prosecution had to tell a story that the jury could understand, and their aim was to show that Sam Bankman Freed intended to carry out fraud, and they wanted to show that that was something that he had done very early on into the origins of his companies. And they also wanted to show that he kind of co-opted others into committing this fraud and encouraged others to commit this fraud. And so that was all about intent was what they were trying to show. And then the defense was trying to disrupt that and, you know, show that it was more complicated and show that it wasn't as straightforward. And certainly, I think, tried to sort of show that Sam Bankman-Fried was this person who spoke truth. And who didn't cave to the government, whereas the other people he had worked with, his so-called inner circle, you know, the three members, yeah. Gary Wong, Deshard Singh and Caroline Ellison, who all testified against him. They really tried to to stand him apart, I thought, from them.
1: Yeah, the, the defense was trying to say, you know, there was no intent to defraud anyone. They often referred to him by his first name in court you know, when the when the prosecutor spoke, it was Bankman Freed. When the defense spoke, it was Sam. Um, and we noticed just kind of as we went through proceedings, there was a lot more jargon in um, the defense's arguments. So we would sit there and hear, you know, gas fees and derivatives and like all of these kind of more complicated terms for a layman person who didn't know about, a lot about finance or crypto, and me, so me actually <laughs> that, a lot of things I didn't. I'm not a i am not a finance journalist by training, so
2: there's a lot of things that I was making note of that I thought that the general public wouldn't understand.
1: No, I, I think you know by the end of it, we wound up with quite a lot of terms that I think you know might have thrown the jury, and we will never we won't really know how the jury made mm. sense of that, like whether that was a factor, but it didn't seem to help. I think like some people would expect as well, if you're covering this case, that
2: you would understand some of these terms. But I think actually a lot of people in that courtroom didn't. And the prosecution's job was to show that you didn't need to understand those terms. Going into this trial, I think it was really clear that this was obviously about crypto but really the prosecution's argument, which I think bore out, was this this was this was fraud. This was like straightforward fraud that we've seen happening for decades, actually. And it you didn't need to understand crypto right. to understand that. And so the prosecution's job was to disentangle the confusion that the defense put out there and to show that it was it was different from that.
0: And I think they did a very good job, right, I think, in really simplifying and putting clarity over the fact that whatever jargon you have, it's just simply a very basic fraud case. Now, you talked just now about the three former colleagues that they brought to the stand, right? Gary Wong, Nishan Singh, Caroline Ellison, perhaps the most interesting or I think the highlight was Gary Wong, although many an- anticipated Caroline Ellison, right, in terms of who was on the stand.
1: I mean, I think I think as we got through the three star witnesses, it sort of became clear that they were all kind of building on each other. And I think Nashad being the end of that, I'm Rachel. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you kind of had Gary Wong start off building the foundation of here's how FTX was set up. Here's how the code was set up. Here's what I was directed to do. And then you had Caroline filling in, here's what Bankman Freed was directing me to tell investors. Here's what he was, um, you know, having me send them. Here is essentially fraud that we committed in representing the financial state of FTX. And then Nishad Building on that further and talking about, you know, he had concerns over how all of this money was being spent. Um, him saying he conf- he confronted Bankman-Fried about it, and so I think honestly they were all powerful, but in very different ways that I don't think we fully grasped until at least for me we got to the end of Nishad Singh's testimony.
0: And what's fascinating is that, as you rightly point out, they tried to connect all the dots together. and Steinbankman Fried, of course, was very Ill in, was intent right in kind of painting a very different picture by trying to disagree right, through either his body language or even through his own testimony about what these three persons were saying, right. But the fact that the narratives of these three star witnesses were very much aligned uh, was really powerful for the prosecution.
2: Very much so. And I think, and then you contrasted that with Bangmanfried's testimony. Now, Bangman Freed didn't have to testify in this trial. And it was a big moment going into it for us thinking about whether he would. And when he did decide, that was a huge turning point, I think. And I, I, I'm not sure if you remember, but the first time that he testified, that actually happened without the jury present, because there was this odd thing that doesn't happen very often in the court system here, where there was a piece of evidence, there was some evidence that the defense wanted to put across. And the judge said, you know what, I don't want the jury to hear this, but I want to mm. hear you kind of fight it out, if you like, with the prosecution in front of me. And then I'll decide if the jury can hear that. And that I still think stands out as like one of the most memorable moments of this trial, because we got to see Bankman Freed give a a pretty disappointing performance on the witness stand when he was up against the prosecutor, Danielle Sassoon, who was fast on her feet and came out of this trial as like one of the stars, I would say. She was very impressive. And that contrasted, you know, he was, Bangun Fried tried to do what he did a lot in interviews, which was sort of spin a bit of a web or, or avoid the question. And she would not let him get away with it
1: no because he can fill he could filibuster or just kind of dodge questions in interviews but literally sat in front of the US government that's not quite an option and it was also very interesting because that was the one moment where we i don't think i realized that prosecutors had been holding back until that moment Mm. and when the jury exited you really saw that she was she was leaving nothing behind every question she wanted to get out of her system that she knew the judge would throw out she just asked questions knowing that the judge would say you can't ask that and it just
2: it was brutal so watching that performance from him and and then also then seeing him on the witness stand with the jury where he was completely different from how we've ever seen him just would really kind of refuse to answer other questions or said he wouldn't know that contrasted with, you know, Nishad and Caroline and Gary was very stuck. And I think obviously that bore out for the jury who just took a few hours to reach their verdict.
1: Yeah. And even though the jury didn't see quite that juxtaposition of his testimony on the first day versus the later days, there were also moments where the prosecution complained to the judge at these sidebars that we couldn't hear, but we read in transcripts later, where they would say, you know, Bankman Fried was angry when Ellison was speaking. Mm. That he was kind of like moving around in his seat, like they they were interpreting all of these signs. And if the prosecution could see that, the jury likely could
0: as well. You know, when I was hearing the podcast, there was a there was a very interesting point Judge Kaplan made about the opening arguments made by both the prosecution and defense, calling them the movie trailer of the bigger movie. Did you think both the prosecution and defence were able to actually sell the movie through the movie trailer?
2: Oh, that's really, it's really difficult to say. I, I would say that the prosecution did a better job of sticking to their preview, if you will. I think mm. they did a pretty good job of staying consistent. And and again, I think that's borne out by how fast the jury reached a verdict. The, the def, I, I think in this case, the defence really was a little bit all over the place at times and didn't seem consistent. And, you know, we should say they had a tougher job. You know, they put forward all these witnesses they wanted to be heard at the trial and all of them were denied. Almost all of them. Almost all of them, yeah. And so they, you know, they couldn't put on as as good a movie, if you like, as the prosecution. The odds were stacked against Bankman Freed from the start of this trial. But the one thing we know about him is if, he even sees a 1% chance of success, he will he will take it. And again, that was something that the prosecution wanted to present in this trial.
0: It feels like actually, you know, when I hear you, right, the, the, the fact that the verdict of the trial was so swift, I think in a couple of hours, correct me if I'm wrong, where the the, the jury was able to establish the verdict very fast. Were you surprised by that?
1: Oh, I yes. I think we were surprised. <laughs> I, I think there was a... We, So neither Rachel nor I are veteran, you know, court reporters, but Mm. we spoke to a lot of them who were also in the court. And I think there was this consensus that some of the like legal instructions the jury had to consider were just so long. There was so much evidence. You know, there was no way that, you know, they they went to go deliberate around 3 p.m. that day and they reached their verdict at uh, 7.45. It was like a four and a half hour deliberation. Um, and we were like, we were sat there with 15 minutes to go before quarter drone. And we were just like, there's absolutely no way. And I think, um, I don't know if this got cut at one point, but I was like, Rachel and I should not gamble because like, we like, it was completely the wrong call.
0: <laughs> and so guilty on all seven charges, I think that was the verdict. Um, and of course, that I think has been seismic for the crypto industry. What's next, actually? When is the next uh, timeline and horizon for SBF?
2: That's a great question. I mean, they've set, so he, he, Bagman Fried now is currently in a, a prison in Brooklyn, um, which was where he was before the trial, because he had been out on on bail on, on house arrest, if you remember, but he um, was seen to have breached the terms of his house arrest. So he's in prison, um, but he'll be sentenced in March, but potentially uh, have an, another trial. Uh, of Bankman-Fried, because there are some other charges which the government have decided to push back uh, to be tried at a later date. Now they did come up during this trial. It's around a, a an accusation of of bribery, um, and that will be a whole potentially could be a whole other trial that will go ahead in 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 twenty twenty
1: four. Yeah, we we don't quite know whether that's going to go ahead yet, um, and everyone's kind of uh, split over whether it will. But so potentially we could have the sentencing delayed to allow for that trial to go ahead first or potentially that second trial gets dropped.
0: You know, Rachel, Kaelin, thanks so much. That was Rachel Humphries and Kaelin Ostraw from The Wall Street Journal with their podcast series, The Trial of Crypto's Golden Boy. I'm Philip C., BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.